So did, uh, I'll tell you a joke <clears throat> while we're getting situated. Did you, my, my poor student, if she, maybe she went somewhere else, that's probably okay. Uh, I teach, uh, my name is Andy Stearns, and I teach down at Faith Baptist Bible College. If you're just coming in, um, I teach Introduction to Bible Study class, and so some of the stuff we're going to talk about today is stuff that we talk about down the college. On Friday, I started everything off with a joke, so today, for this session, you can have the joke too. Did you hear the one about the antennas that fell in love and got married? So they met on a rooftop, and they started sending some signals. And then they decided they were in love, and so they got married. The wedding was nothing special, but the reception was excellent. <laughs> Sorry. Best joke ever. No, not really. Um, this is great, though. I told that at 7 a.m. on Friday for Introduction to Bible Study class, and this is what I got. So, thank you. My self-esteem is way higher now, so, which is horrible. Okay, uh, <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. Um, my grandma, let me, let's pray, let's pray, and then I'll tell you a story about my grandma. All right, Father, we love you. Thank you for today, Lord. Thank you that we can come to uh, this retreat where we can be in fellowship with one another, we can connect with people we haven't seen in a long time, and we can sit under your word so that it can renew our minds and renew our thoughts and, and edify us on our Christian walk. Father, I pray that this would be a helpful time. Father, I pray you'd help me to be clear and understandable. I pray that those who are here listening would work hard to pay attention. I pray, Father, that these ideas would help us to handle your word better. In your son's name we pray, amen. So my grandma <clears throat> was a really good cook. I don't know if any of you have a grandma who's like that. She was a farm wife grandma, and so she could cook. And I didn't know how good she could cook until I got older and she stopped cooking. And then I started going to my friend's grandma's houses, and I was, what is wrong with this stuff? I mean, you, this meal is terrible. Anyways, so she would make, I don't know if I actually have ever said that in my life, all my poor friends. What grandmas have I been to their house? Okay. They told me this is recorded. Okay, <clears throat> maybe Austin can edit that. So I go there, and you'd get there at like, you know, 9 or 10 in the morning, and you'd go play. She was living on a little farm outside of Adel. And you'd smell it cooking all day, and then you'd go in, and she'd let you taste the mashed potatoes and whatnot. And she's putting all this work into it. And then she's got to set the table. And so obviously it's an ornate table setting, and she puts all the food out there. And you're like, oh, this is so exciting. Everyone sits down, and you're like, what's that? And she's like, okay, that's pot roast, that's chicken, that's potato. You know, she's going through it all, and she hopes there's enough food. There's like seven of us. You know how this goes. And so imagine if she's like, okay, is this great? And we're like, this is an awesome meal. Okay, all right, should we go and get some pizza now? And she just starts throwing all of it in the trash. What would you do? Um, today, that actually is what I want to talk about, but I want to talk about it when we get sit down to have a spiritual meal. So sometimes we study the Bible, and we don't apply it. And so it's kind of like we set the table, we get ready to consume this and be nourished, and we're amazed at what we see, and we're like, man, that was awesome, that would be so cool to do. All right, I gotta go. And, it, and we don't apply it to our lives in a way that's helpful. And so when you do that, it's kind of like setting the table for this awesome meal, and then you don't actually sit down and eat it. And so today, what we want to talk about is how to apply the Bible to our life. So in the first session, we talked about observation. In this one, we're going to talk about the last step, which is apps, uh, application. 
I want to start off by talking to you about the when of application. Now, because we're switching and some new people have shown up, I'm going to do a quick overview of what I just said. So those of you who are just here, sorry, you're going to have to hear it again, but it'll be really quick. The method that we talked about is the observation, interpretation, application method, the OIA method. And that is also known as inductive Bible study. So if you've ever looked at how to study the Bible, there's different methods and different ways to go about it. The inductive method is the one I think is the best and will get you the closest to what the scriptures say. The last step of that is application. And what I want to talk about today is how to do that well. But the first thing we need to remind ourselves of is that you only apply the Bible once you have interpreted it. And you only interpret the Bible once you have studied it or observed it. So you have to go in a certain order here. And many times we go out of order. Let me see what else I got here. So if you think of application, you should think of it as the capstone to Bible study. So if you're building an arch with bricks and, well, that's a keystone, I guess. The capstone is like the top stone. You put it on like a crown on a building. It's the last stone you put up. You can never put the capstone on first. You've got to build your edifice or your structure. So application is like that final stone you put on to complete your building. You never want to do it too early. There are three errors that we end up making when it relates to application. Um, these are not, these are just, like summary errors I've seen, so, but I think, they're, I think you'll notice them. So the first thing that we do when we do application wrongly is we do that by neglecting application. That's like what I just described, neglecting application. It's like we make this awesome meal, we study out the Bible, and then we just don't really do anything about it. So if you're thinking about a person who might do this the most, this is probably, maybe, the nerdy person. Now, if this is you, I'm not calling you a nerd. I'm calling me a nerd, okay? So this is the person who really does enjoy studying. Like, they like to dig in. They like to know what the Bible says. They like to read the commentaries. And that is all great. That's excellent. Everyone should think that. But then what happens is they really spend their time studying. And they really spend their time researching. And then they ask more questions. And all of that is good. But what they don't do is they don't remember to pause and stop and say, how does this apply to my life? So they end up leaning more toward the intellectual study element of the process. And so that's, that's not what we want, but that happens a lot of times. Have you ever been in a situation where you've got someone teaching or preaching, or you're talking to your friend, you're having a Bible study, and you really do have this great study, or the, the, the passage is presented really clearly, and then it's like, okay, let's pray, and really there wasn't any asking the question of how this relates to your life. Like, even in a Bible study with a group, like, you talk a long time about what the text means, and then you, like, pray and go home, but if you look back, did you actually discuss or think about how does this affect how I live. That's what happens when we neglect application. And what that means is we're like that person in the book of James. James says there's a person who looks in the mirror of God's word and they see on their face maybe like dirt or something. They're like, whoa, I've got this smudge of dirt right here. And then they turn away from the mirror and they forget what they saw because they don't do anything about it. Well, that's what happens when we neglect application. We don't take that final step to try to implement the truth of Scripture into our life. There's another error, though. This error is elevating application. Elevating, I was trying to find a good word for this. 
But this is the person who's really, really practical. Maybe another word for this would be pragmatic. So they're the kind of person that says, you know, I'm not a big theologian. And that's fine. You don't have to be, well, everyone's a theologian. It's just how good you are. But you don't have to be like a superstar theologian. But they might say something like, you know, I'm not a theologian. I just don't really care about all that ivory tower talk. You know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I just want to know how this matters in my life. I mean, I really want to serve God. And so if this is not going to help me serve God, I just don't need to know it. You know, who cares how God created the world? Who cares when he's coming back? Who cares if Israel's figured it? I just, how do I need to live right now? Now, I do think there's something super um, right on about some of those thoughts. If I only ever go to the Bible and I never ask the question, how does this change me and what should I be doing differently? I'm not going to be a doer of the word. I'm going to be a hearer only. So I appreciate the heart behind this, just like I appreciate the heart behind the person who wants to know what the Bible says and means and spends lots of energy. I actually like both these persons. I actually wish we could put them in a blender, blend them up and have one, well, not that, but put them, could we connect mind meld Star Trek, like Spock, you know, mind meld them together? But if they could, if they could combine forces and each of them play to their strengths, that would be good. But there's a problem, maybe, I don't want to read their heart yet, and if this is you, I don't, you need to look in your own heart here. But this person over here just wants it to be practical. Well, they don't really need to know about Leviticus, okay? You know, God tells Israel to, you know, sacrifice some bull. I'm not in Israel, it doesn't matter to me. But did God include that in the Bible? He did. Does God know that one day there would be a group called the church? Newsflash, yes. He knew that. <laughs> so why did he choose to include it if it wouldn't apply to the church? Mm, maybe there's something there we do need to know. So there's a little bit of I know more than God does behind that that they may not even be aware of. And the worst case is they're just totally self-centered and they just want what's going to help them and then they're moving on. So I, don't, I think both of those have good points and both of those have weaknesses. So we either neglect application or we elevate application to the only thing that matters to us. The last, as I was trying to think through what do we do, I think distorting application is what I would call it. I couldn't really find a good word for this one. But this is where we do a really awesome study of the Bible and we actually get some really good stuff out. And then we go to apply it and, and you're kind of like, well, that was out of left field. Have you ever had someone who walks you through a passage and then all of a sudden they make the application and you're like, I, that's like, was that on the wrong sermon? Like, was that from that sermon and it meant to be on this one? Or, man, that ladies retreat dude, he just, he started here and I don't know where he was going. I'm not going to that Bible college. What in the world? You know, like, do you ever have that happen? My friend used to say it this way. You can have like a really right application, but it's in the wrong passage. So, right, 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 uh, right truth, wrong passage. And so you have someone, it's like maybe you have an agenda. So like you want to you talk about sacrifice. You really want your church to sacrifice. They're not sacrificing enough. Your friends aren't sacrificing. We need to be sacrificial Christians. What are we going to do? Leviticus 19. What does that bull do? It gets up on that altar and it dies. You need to be the bull. You need to get on the altar and die and give your life over to God like a sacrifice. <laughs> Jesus, do you say Jesus done did it? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Two points. I like that. <laughs> but do you see how 
do you see that what I actually told you to do is actually in the Bible? (laughs) You should put your life on the altar and make it a sacrifice to God. Where in the Bible does it say that? Romans 12, 1 and 2. It doesn't say that in Leviticus 19. Okay, the bull in Leviticus 19 is a sacrifice for a sin committed by an Israelite that actually didn't even take care of the problem. It just kind of covered it up until Christ came and dealt with it. And so you could have something that you want to say. You explain clearly the bull did go up on the altar. It is supposed to be a sacrifice. It has no will of its own. Therefore, you need to be a bull. Whoa, where did that come from? And so you can have like a distorted application. Or sometimes you have an application that's close. I mean, it's... It's saying some good things, but then there's little bits inserted. So we really want to be careful when we apply the Bible to make sure that we're applying what's in the passage we're studying. Um, I, right now we're going through Psalm 119, an introduction to Bible study. We read tw- uh, 16 verses at a time. That's the psalm that goes by the Hebrew letters, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Tav, and, or Tau. Or, anyways, I teach Greek, I don't Hebrew, whatever. So, uh oh, I just made my own error. <laughs> that doesn't matter to me. Okay. So, we <laughs> the worst part is the Hebrew teacher is in the bookstore display downstairs. So, don't tell my. He'll know I said that. Um, so, we're reading these, and we'll have like 16 verses, and I purposely do this. I let them read it, and I say, okay, what jumped out at you? And then they just they talk. And there are some really good applications that they know already. But there are other times where someone that will say, you know, right here it says this, and that just makes me think, and then they say something that it's not wrong, but it is not right there in that passage. And so when it comes to application, we want to be careful not to make any of these errors. Well, how do you do that? Like, how do you actually apply the Bible properly? Well, I want to give you a couple of um, exam- or a couple of descriptions of what a good application is. What is a good application? I would say there, there's a whole list of things you could talk about, but if I had to give you two that I think are essential, I would say that a good application is based on a principle in the text. It's based on a principle in the text. The other way to speak about that would be a timeless truth. A timeless truth. Now, when I say that, what I mean is the truth that's true is true no matter what time in history you talk about it. So there's this um, book on Bible study called Grasping God's Word, and it's a a book on how to study the Bible, and he has this really cool illustration. And I'm going to share it with you, and if you think about this, it'll help you every time you study the Bible. Imagine this platform here. Over here is a biblical town. That was excellent. Whoever's ringtone that was, I'm giving you six points. That was timed, awesome. Couldn't have gone better. <laughs> wow. That's... Last Wednesday when it was raining, I said something in class and it thundered. So this is two weeks in a row. This is, yeah. Okay, so I'm standing in an adobe hut or a, you know, a clay hut or whatever. There's a thatched roof. There's a donkey right there. You can smell him, okay? There's a bundle of hay he's trying to eat, but I'm trying to keep him away because that's his dinner and I don't want to eat too early. You know, my wife is in the back cooking something in an open flame. I just got back from working in the field and I'm exhausted, okay? This is a biblical town. And so in that biblical town, 
we have a, a piece of scripture, okay? Uh, if you sin, you sacrifice a bull. If you didn't know about it, if you have an un, unknown sin, you realize you sin, you need to go sacrifice a bull to the priest, and you need to take part of it here, and get part of it to the priest, and eat part of it with your family. Uh, but if you sin, and its value is this much, then you have a lamb. Okay, there's all these instructions that I live by. Over here. This is the today's town where we live right now. So it's a stage, it's at a camp, there's a bunch of ladies in the room. Okay, see how this is like already here, but let's, you know, it's a house, there's a sink, it's like present day situation. My question is, what separates me from the biblical town? There's a lot of things that separate me. You could probably name them all, but we'll just name a few. Number one, I'm not under the Mosaic law, right? Christ died, he fulfilled that, it's done and over with, but... Andy over there who just got back from working in the field, he's under the Mosaic law. So he has to abide by that. What else is different between us? Well, I have a cell phone. He didn't have a cell phone. Now you're like, well, of course, but actually there's a big difference here. Like there's a technological difference. There's some cultural things, you know. I'm wearing some clothing that he would not have worn. Probably thought that looks a little weird. So there's a lot of differences. Command differences, culture differences, time differences. What I need to find anytime I read the Bible is what is true over there in his town? Like, what is the truth over here? And then imagine in the middle here there's this river, and you can't cross it without building a bridge. And in that river, the water is made up of all the differences between us and that biblical town. The way you build a bridge to get from this town to that town is you find a timeless truth. And that becomes your bridge to get over those differences. So that's what we're going to attempt to do later on. I'm going to say, well, this Leviticus command, does that have anything to do with us? Not in this sense. I'm here at the ladies' retreat, and I unknowingly commit a sin. I don't know what that would be here. I don't have one of the mugs. <laughs> Katie Parsons, I, yep. So, oh, no, no, it's even better. I take Katie Parsons' mug, and I smash it on the ground in anger. Oh, I didn't know I did it. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, <laughs> just go with it. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know I just smashed it. Whoa, didn't know that happened. Okay. And, and so now I've sinned. And I didn't know it, and I just realized it. And so what do I do? I go get a lamb, and I slaughter it, and I give it to my pastor? Okay, maybe I take, maybe it's a bull sin. I take a bull. Okay, I kill the bull, but no, and now I'm here. So do you see, what do you do with that kind of stuff? Maybe it's this. Well, okay. Maybe there's this bull, and I think, you know what? The bull represents the stock market, because when it's doing well, it's bullish. Oh, I know. I'm supposed to take my profits from the stock market and sacrifice them to my pastor. Everyone's like, no way. Amber's like, yes! <laughs> She's my, anyways. Uh, <clears throat> my pastor's wife here, okay. No, but is that what you do? The question is, how do you get what's over there that's true over here. Well, that's what application is. And a lot of that comes down to this. It comes down to being accurate to the author's intention. The author's intention. This is really interesting, and if you think about author authorial intent or the author's intention, that will help you. A lot of times we read this book and we want the deeper allegorical meaning so I want to know, does the bull represent the stock market? Do I give the money to my pastor? What do I do to make up for this? When really, that was all Israel. But there is something that's true. 
What was the author's intention in telling the Israelite to sacrifice? Well, his intention was to tell them, if you want to be right with me and have nothing in between you and me, you've got to do this or there's something going on that's not dealt with. Huh, well now that sounds a little familiar. Over here, God's saying you need to deal with sin. And you need to deal with it the way I tell you to deal with it. What happens when you sacrifice the wrong thing to deal with sin in the Old Testament? How'd that go for Cain? You see? Wait a second. Okay, there's maybe a principle. So over here, if I sin, what should I do? Well, I should try to deal with that sin the way God wants me to. Is there anywhere in the New Testament where God tells me how to deal with sin? Yes, there is. The intention of God in Leviticus was to tell an Israelite how to handle sin. There's more than that, though. His intention was also to show us more. So how does God treat sin in the Old Testament? Well, it's not like just a whoopsie-daisy, right? It's not like our favorite television personality, who I won't say his name, but his first name kind of sounds like a hole, and last name kind of sounds like Steen. And uh, anyways, you know, it's not a whoopsie-daisy. Sin is, is sin. And this is an unknown sin that you didn't know about, you committed without realizing it, and then you realized it later. What's the temptation we have? My temptation is, oh, I didn't even real, I didn't mean to, so it's not like I sinned. God doesn't care. But actually, God takes sin so seriously that if that happened in the Old Testament, you had to kill an animal. You don't just do that over a whoopsie-daisy. That's a sin. So do you see how the principle here, God takes sin seriously, I find that all over in my town. I find that all over in the New Testament. Well, the author's intention there was to inform an Israelite what to do, but the other intention, I think, was to show Israel that sin is an issue and you need to come to me to deal with it. That is a principle that comes across, I think, into my town. So that's what you're trying to do. So when you apply it, you want to make sure you stay within the author's intention. You don't want to go beyond that. When I was like saying the bull represents the stock market, I was just being allegorical. I was being creative. I wasn't even asking the question, what did God mean by that? And that's where people get into trouble when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Now, the second thing you want to do, not that. Thank you. Is you want to make sure it's based on your life context. So base it on a principle in the text and base it on your life context. See how that kind of matches a little? That's kind of fun. This is the point This is being accurate to the situation in your life or the lives that are around you. And so what I'm trying to say here is that when you make an application, you want it to be concrete, not abstract. Or you want it to be specific, not generic, or clear, not theoretical. So maybe we're talking about the Leviticus thing, and I know that God takes sin seriously, and so my application might be, I need to take sin seriously. Is that an abstract or a concrete application? Abstract, I agree, two points, that's right. You can't do anything with these points, by the way. Uh, My wife has thousands, she laments that they're not worth anything. (coughs) But she has way more than anyone else, thank you. Um, (laughs) Good thing she's not here, she'd probably like get mad at me. Um, hey, stop. <laughs> stop. So, yeah, it's, it's good for me to know that I need to take sin seriously. But specifically, how does that affect my life? Well, maybe it's like this. Usually, if I don't know what's right and wrong in a situation, I might say, ah, just do whatever. If you, you know, God, God forgives. It's no big deal. 
But is that the right attitude? No. So think about it like this. Let's take taxes. So you are filling out your taxes, and every year you don't claim a couple of things that you should claim, and you don't mention a couple of things that you should mention, and it always bumps you down just one tax bracket, and the difference is like 50 bucks. It's really not that much, but it saves a little extra, and you're kind of excited about it. It's not like you murdered someone, okay? Do you understand that? You're not murdering anyone. You're just saving a little extra cash. I mean, how much money does the government have? I mean, they steal it from us anyways, right? Okay, do you understand how the justifications you're, you can throw out right here? But when you see how seriously God took un, un, like unaware sin in the Old Testament, and you understand that even killing a bull wasn't good enough, his son had to come to die, how seriously do you think God takes your $50 you saved on your tax return? Pretty seriously. So what would be a concrete application? I need to be completely honest when I fill my taxes out. And you know what you could do? If that's a temptation for you, maybe you need to pay an extra 50 bucks and have an accountant fill out your taxes for you. That way there's no temptation. Here's another example. Um, I don't think it's a sin to play video games. Otherwise, my, well, my entire youth was wasted on them. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> three years ago I was up here speaking and the evening speaker, I was the morning speaker and I'm listening to the evening speaker and he was going through... 1 Corinthians, where he talks about meat sacrificed to idols. And he says, Paul was willing to give up something that is rightfully okay for him to do for the sake of having a larger gospel ministry. And I could have applied that to my life and said, I need to give up things that are not sinful, but would help me have a larger gospel ministry. Is that concrete or abstract? It's specifically abstract. <laughs> so instead, this is what happened. You know, praise the Lord for his conviction in my life, but I really liked a game at the time called Clash of Clans. Probably not, anyone here play Clash of Clans? Okay, yeah, we're just, Men's Retreat. That'd be good for Men's Retreat. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? It's nothing sinful about that game. I played it with people from my church, got to know them, but I realized I was spending a lot of time playing that, like a lot. And I'm trying to get all this stuff done in my life. I'm trying to teach students at faith you know what, that is something I should probably give up. So when I applied it, I said, I'm going to quit playing Clash of Clans so I can have more opportunity to serve God. Now, if I quit playing Clash of Clans and I start playing Pac-Man or I don't know, whatever, it's no different. But do you see how that's specific to a, an actual context of my life? That's what we're aiming at when it comes to application. You want to be more specific than general if possible. Okay, so those are the two, what I would say are big principles you still have this problem, though. You, um, you get to where you're like, I know I, need to, I know I need to apply the Bible, and I just don't really know what to do. I know I'm supposed to be specific, and I'm not supposed to be abstract, but I just don't know. So there's this book by Peter Kroll called The Knowable Word. It's a super small book on Bible study. It's a really good resource. He has a website where he has tons of blog posts. I wonder if he had his blog first, and then the editor at this publishing company said, we'd like to make a book out of that. So I would say go to his website for helps. But what he does is he says, you know, you can think of application in spheres. This is not like necessarily biblical, but it's a good creative thing that helps you think clearly about your life. So he says, when you go to apply the Bible, think of the three spheres in your life. So here they are. The head, the heart, and the hands. Your head, your heart, your hands. 
Now, I'll make a quick caveat at the end here, but really, <clears throat> this is just to help you be thinking of areas of your life where you can apply the scriptures. So when he says head, he's talking mostly about like knowledge, so content knowledge. So if you think about it, when I was talking about Leviticus, and I'm finding out that all these sins that God talks about in the Old Testament that we need a sacrifice for are sins you commit without realizing it, I might have thought that if I don't know that I'm sinning, God doesn't count it against me. But what the Bible did there is it taught me that even when I sin and I don't realize it, that's a serious issue to God. So an application there is I need to teach myself to always remember that even the things I don't realize I do, I need to care about because God takes that seriously. That would be like a way that application affects your knowledge, your understanding, your will. And, or, or your knowledge and your understanding, we'll keep will for heart there. So you could think about your head. So the next time you study a passage, how does this affect my knowledge? Because sometimes studying the Bible is literally just about studying. And I think there's this impulse in our culture today to want something tangible and real and authentic and awesome. And sometimes being faithful to read the Bible and understand it is really the best thing you can do. A lot of times I would go to the Bible, I said this earlier, but I'd go to the Bible and I wanted it to make me feel different. So I'd, you know, I'd flip open and I'm reading Ezekiel. I don't know what Ezekiel's about and it's not doing anything for me. And I'd flip over to Lamentations and why is this guy so mad at stuff? And, you know, and <laughs> I don't know what this is. And I'd do this. What is wrong? Why isn't God talking to me? Why isn't God helping me? Well, number one, I'm treating this like a stiff drinker Prozac. I just want it to make me feel better. I actually don't want to know God. And so it took me saying, I'm going to prepare for Sunday school, and I'm going to learn this passage really well because I know people are going to have questions. And in like an hour and a half long deep study, that's when, whoa, the lights are going on, and I feel like I know God, and I'm confident in things I was questioning. And it came through knowing the Bible well. And so in our culture, we're biblically illiterate. Really, sometimes just knowing more is really helpful. So is there like scripture memory? That can really help your, your head area. It helps you reorder your thoughts to rearrange the mental furniture so that when you see the world, you see it from God's perspective. You know, sometimes you just ask the question, what is life? And then read about Isaiah getting sawn in half. You know, what is life? And read about Paul getting shipwrecked in his ministry for God. What is life? And you read about Jesus going to the cross. And now look at the TV, and what does the TV say? What is life? Oh, it's happiness, it's fun, it's all this. What was Leviticus concerned about? Holiness. What's our culture concerned about? Happiness. Again, these are thoughts that we need changed. We need our minds renewed. And so I think that's a way we could think through the, what I just read and studied. How does that change how I think? All right, number two, the heart. These are like, he, he wants you to think about like your feelings, your emotions, your desires, your will, what you're aiming at in life, what your goals are in life. We kind of get the emotional part because we've all seen a Disney movie and we all live in our culture of feelings, but it's bigger than that. It's like where you're, like what you're seeking in life. Like what, are, what is your goal? If, if I could say um, I have magic powers and if you ask for anything, I can make it happen, Tell me the thing you want your life to look like, you've always wanted it to look like, and I will make it happen for you right now. How would you answer that question? And then once you answer it, ask, is that the good life that you find in the Bible? Is it the same or is it different? 
Now, that's a knowledge thing, but it's also a what I love thing. It's where my affections are set. It's where my heart is living on after. So when it says heart, that's the idea. Now, here's my caveat. In the Bible, the difference between the head and the heart doesn't exist. They're the same thing. Paul calls it your inner man or your inner woman or your inner person. It's just who you are. Your feelings, your thoughts, your ideas, your desires, your emotions, your, 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 your passions, all those things about you, that's just you, not physical though. What's nice about his way of thinking is it kind of narrows it down to something. So maybe you are going through a particularly difficult time in life. You should live in the Psalms because David will tell you the emotions that you should be able to feel. That it, you know, if, you, if you're going through the, the tough stuff of life, go to the Psalms because David teaches you the words that you can say in those times to feel the right things. He actually gives you permission to be sad and to, to have sorrow, but then he always follows up with turning to God no matter what. So <clears throat> that can help you. What is it affecting in your head? What would it affect in your heart? And then the hands is the easy one. What do you do? Like, what are your actions in life? So this one's usually more one-to-one. So think about Ephesians 4, and Paul has talked about all the things that we used to be before we were saved, and now he says, because of that, do these things differently. And the first thing he says is, let the one who lies stop lying. Well, how do you apply that to your actions? Well, speech is an action that we do, so don't lie. It's very simple. Well, what do you do about that? Well, where do I lie? Hmm, where do I deceive? Hmm, my taxes. Do you see how that goes? Sorry, I'm back at the tax thing. I'm not, I'm not cheating on my taxes. It's just an illustration that popped in my mind. Um, think about th- stealing. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work hard with his hands. See, it says it right there in the passage. So that he may have something good to give to those who are in need. Now, this one's really great because not only does it say don't steal things, that's the action you need to stop. Now you can say, do I ever steal things? If I do, I need to stop. But there's a positive application. Work hard with your hands. And I think if you type on the keyboard, that's the same. It's not like you have to be a woodworker or a stonecutter or whatever. But work hard with your hands. Why? So you don't have to steal? He actually doesn't say that. So you can get rich and be comfortable? doesn't say that either. He says, work hard with your hands so you will have extra money to share with other people who are in need. Notice, let's compare that. Okay, here's the thief over here. Why does the thief steal? He or she wants stuff. There's a self-motivation. Even if you're stealing to give it to someone in need, you're still doing it the way you think is best, not God. So I think there's a selfishness here. But over here, if you work really hard so you have extra money in case someone else is in need, it's inherently unselfish. It's inherently others-focused. So now by looking for the hand application, we're actually seeing a worldview application. Oh, I should be working hard, not so I can retire in perfect comfort, but so that I have money to help people who are in need who maybe don't have it. Um, I, I have this newfound um, appreciation for people who go through health problems. We had a small health problem in our family, and uh, you know, I thought, oh, great, I got insurance, and Tell you what, <laughs> those copays will kill you. <laughs> Not really. But it was actually, it was, it was taxing on the old finances. And it occurred to me that I've known people who have gone through long-term medical issues, and I've never once thought, I wonder if they're doing okay financially. Huh. 
it really helped me to think that way. So I should try to work and earn money so that I have a little extra so if I find out there's a need, I can go help them. Think about the testimony you'd be to your neighbor if your neighbor, unsaved or saved, is going through something hard and you walked over and said, hey, I just want to give you a, just a little bit of money here. I don't know what you're going through, but I want to be encouragement. I'm sure that you probably got expenses. Uh, maybe you offered to mow their lawn. Okay, applications here. You're actually embodying that verse of being unselfish toward other people by thinking about what is the hand application in the text. Does that make sense? Do you see how this helps? I always remember, like, I know I need to apply the Bible, and I'm sitting here saying, how do I make this apply? And I could be like, I need to love God more. Okay, how do I know if I've loved God? After a week, how do I know if I loved God more or less? Like, what does it mean to love God? What does it look like? All those questions, this way of thinking, will just help you get going down that road. You may not find it helpful. You may find a different way. But whatever you do, try to find something that makes it more specific for you. Okay, there's one more idea I want to talk about. And there's a couple of examples here that we'll walk through. Um, the idea of correspondence. So how closely, remember the example of the river in the middle and the biblical town in my town? How close am I in situation to whatever I'm reading in the scriptures? There are times where you'll have a more direct correspondence. Things will correspond very, very nicely. And so I think, yeah, so my example here of a really good correspondence would be a New Testament epistle. A New Testament epistle. So I'm just going to go to Ephesians four real quick. I'm just going to read for a while to just listen. And I just want you to pay attention to how many of these things directly right now would apply to your life. Uh, we'll start in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one... Actually, we should back up. Verse 17. Now I say this, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated in the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He just described the Gentile world which looks a lot like the unsaved world. That's really what he's talking about. Well, is there an unsaved world around us? Yeah, that description actually looks really identical. So that applies almost right away. He goes on to say, that's not how you learned Christ. Question, if you're a believer, have you learned Christ? That's what it's talking about. Well, yeah, you're saved. So when he now says, that's not how you got saved, everything that follows should be something I've experienced or something you've experienced if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. He says, that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming you've heard of him, and you've, you were taught in him, the truth is in Jesus, that you have put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. You have put on the new, you've been renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you have put on the new self, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. That's a description of getting saved. You put off that old person, and you put on this new person in the Lord, that's being renewed in your mind, being recreated in Christ's image. That, that's who we are. There's the description of me. That's a description of you. Now look what he says next. Therefore, therefore, you always see therefore and you ask what it's there for. This is so great. Yes. That's a good Bible study principle. Uh, and so, therefore, he builds everything he says now on what just took place. So I just, he just described the Gentile, unbelieving world, what it's like to get saved, and now he says this is how you live. This is how you should live as a Christian. Do you see how this is going to all apply to you? Put away falsehood in verse 25. It's 26, get angry, but don't sin. 28, 
Stop stealing. Don't steal anymore, but get more money to have for people who need it. 29, don't be corrupting in your talk. Don't, don't tear people down. Don't be impure in your thoughts. 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. 31, don't be bitter and get angry and have wrath toward people. Don't slander everyone. Keep away from malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. No one has to ask, am I supposed to be tender-hearted? Am I supposed to be forgiving? Because it says right there, as Christ forgave you. So this is direct. So the nice thing about the New Testament uh, letters is almost all of them are going to directly apply. So it's very safe for application. Number two, the Gospels. Now, see how it says 10 right there? I'm saying like on a 1 out of 10 scale, there's like a, 10, a level 10 correspondence, really good correspondence between us and the New Testament. For the Gospel, I'd say there's like a level 8. When Jesus was here and the Gospels are talking about his life, the old covenant, the law, was still in effect. So sometimes Jesus will say things and they're more specific to that old era of the law. But many times he's saying things that go across all eras. Blessed are the, those who seek uh, after righteousness. And, it, and there's some principle there. The, the whole Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are you if you do this, if you do this, you do this. Well, all of those blessed things, the, the Beatitudes, those would apply to us as God's people. Jesus will say all kinds of things. When he says, you know, um, take the log out of your eye before you go and try to take the speck of dust out of your friends, I don't think any of us can say, oh, I would do that too, but that was under the law. Sorry, Christ fulfilled the law, don't have to do that one. Do you see how that, that's not fitting what the Bible's doing with that verse? The intention is that we would all learn as God's people to do those things. So there are sections of the Bible where there's more correspondence. Then there are sections where there's, I'll call it indirect correspondence. I'm, I'm not going to immediately see maybe the connection. So my first example here is going to be Leviticus. <laughs> I hate, I don't hate. Uh, I, I know I'm picking on Leviticus, but it is just, it's one of those books where you read it. Like two times in my life, I tried to read straight through the Bible and I died in Leviticus. You know, you know what it's like. You get there and you're like, I don't understand any of this. None of this applies to my life. So with the sacrifice, what do I have to do? Do you remember all the steps? I had to say, oh, God takes sin seriously. Okay, I need to take sin seriously. Do I need to sacrifice a bull? No, unless I want to grill it or something. But not because I'm sinning. Do I need to sacrifice a lamb? No, unless I'm making a hero or something like that. You know, but again... The issue is that I need to take sin seriously. Now, the only thing I would say is that's true unless there's a repeated idea or a repeated principle. So if you think about Leviticus 19.1, I, th I think it's 19.1, be holy as I am holy, your heavenly Father. Let's just double check that. Nope. Different verse. There's a verse in Leviticus, you have to trust me. And it says, be... <laughs> Otherwise, my, anyways, it says, be holy like God is holy, like be perfect like the Heavenly Father. And all throughout Leviticus, that's the issue. God is holy. And so we, or the people of Israel, should have been holy. Be holy as God is holy. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Have you ever heard that before? Does that sound familiar? Yes. It's repeated in Peter, where Peter says, be perfect like your Father. In heaven, be holy like God is holy. So if there's an Old Testament idea and a New Testament writer repeats it, that ups the correspondence exponentially. But a lot of times in the Old Testament, you know, we got to be careful about that. 
And, you know, you got to be careful of the allegorizing. You're not trying to always come up with some unknown meaning, you know, that's going on like, well, you know, Moses held up his staff, so if I want to win my life, i got to hold up my Bible. As long as my arms are up, God will bless me. That's not how the Bible works. That's really bad correspondence, okay? If I see you doing that, I will take the Bible out of your hands. All right, number two, Proverbs. I think this is like a five or a six. It's super practical. I mean, really practical. But the genre is poetry, so you've got to understand how poetry works. So there's a little bit more work. When, um, let's think about this. Okay, so Proverbs 5 is the, I'm just going to double check this, is the wayward woman. Yes. So what is Proverbs? Let's ask some questions of background. Who wrote Proverbs? I think it was Solomon. Who is he writing to? He says to my son. What's he trying to do? He's trying to warn his son how to live in a way where he won't fail out at life and, and, and die. Because what did Solomon do? Well, he, he didn't really do so well. He tells the story in chapter 5 about you know, the, the wayward kid who kind of just walks near the hooker's house. And then she comes out and she like kind of calls him in. And Solomon warns his son. He says, don't go to that woman's house because you think you're eating stolen bread that tastes good, but the trap door to hell is right there and you're going to die. Now that sounds like super, but what he's saying is when you commit adultery and you have to deal with the jilted spouse, you might get killed. Don't do that, son. And so how does that apply? Well, Solomon is telling his son in an ancient Near Eastern culture that had no vengeance ideas going on, that if you commit adultery, you're probably going to set your life up for a bad situation. It says you'll give your strength to another. Basically, the idea is that your money that you worked hard for will probably get taken from you. The town will probably put you in prison. They may even stone you to death for committing adultery. I mean, you've got to not do this, son. So in Solomon's era, one-to-one transference, what do I do with that now? Well, I think as a guy, I should know. I shouldn't go out and be an adulterer. I shouldn't go be looking around where I could find someone to cheat on with. Definitely that's an application for me, but I'm a guy. You're not. So you can walk by a whorehouse, and that's okay, right? See? You got it. I said that, and you're like, that guy's an idiot. (laughs) No. It is to a son to say, son, don't commit adultery, but it's not like only the guys can't commit adultery. I think that applies to all people. You shouldn't commit adultery because what is the result of adultery? There's a lot of bad consequences. You want to avoid those in your life. It's going to mess your whole life up. Don't do it. I think there's another application, and this one's a little harder to see. Is the adulterous woman in that chapter held up as someone virtuous? No. For the next four chapters, he describes that adulterous woman in different words. She's wily, her lips speak like dripping honey. And so there's all of these, you could actually build like a character list of the characteristics of this adulterous woman. Guess what? You, ladies, should not embody those characteristics. That's not how you should be known. Us guys, on their hand, we could be known that way because that's only talking about the girls. Do you see how that doesn't work either? The Bible is holding up the adulterous woman as a wicked person of wicked character, and the example is one to avoid whether you're a guy or a girl. And the guy who goes by her house, looking, he's just bored, you know, whatever, just looking around here, you know, oh, hey, happened upon you today, you know. He's an idiot. 
No, he is. I'm not just trying to make a, a, a slanderous comment about him. He has no sense. That's what it says. He lacks sense. He's the fool. And so we shouldn't be like that whether we are a guy or a girl. So now do you see how I had to do more work to make sense of that in my situation, but it still does apply. So that's what I mean when you have to do a little bit more work in there. And so that's really important to think through those uh, differences. Okay, so let me wrap this up. <clears throat> what I would say is when it comes to applying the Bible, it should feel more like you're sitting down reflecting on your life, and reflecting on what the author meant by what the author said. It should look more like that than you're sitting down in this meditative spirit waiting for God to strike you with lightning and an inspiration of what it means to you. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that God can't give you a moment where something's super clear. I know there are times where, you know, I'm walking off or I'm doing something or someone says something that didn't even mean it and the spirit convicted me, oh, wow, you know, that's been ruminating in my head for a while. I should not do that. That can happen, but we don't go to this Bible to, like, intuitively get something, or it doesn't just, like, soak into us. You have to study it. You have to think about it. Uh, a principle I think is helpful is, I think the Bible communicates with us the way we communicate with others, with each other. So how do I talk to you? Like, how do I communicate to you while I talk to you, right? I don't feel to you or emote to you. I can't be like, okay, ready? <laughs> did you get that? No, if I did that, you'd think that's creepy. <laughs> if I just walked up and I'm like, I just wanted to, ah, oh, yes. You'd think something else happened. It'd be terrible. <laughs> what do we do? How did God design us? He gave us a mind and a mouth and ears so that we could communicate. So why do we go to the Bible and think there's this mystical thing that will happen apart from thinking? Now, I'm not saying that something like that couldn't happen, but I'm saying in our culture, I think the teeter-totter of experience and study is tilted way over this way. And I really, if I could do anything, I'd like to try to bring balance to that today. If I push you all the way over to here and you're like a robot or whatever, then I've done the wrong thing. But I'd like it to be balanced. You have to study. But the study, this side of the teeter-totter is what allows this side to happen. I study a text out. I study all this. And that's when the Spirit is ready to use that in my heart to convict me of a sin I wasn't even aware of. So, study your Bibles. Study them deeply. Uh, give energy to it because it really is worth it. Let's go ahead and pray.